at the beginning of today's lesson, A of S, assurance of salvation. Now, you have received, I think, a little half sheet that I prepared for you, assurance of salvation. I summarized that half sheet down from a larger sheet that I have here. And I think this was originally given as a chapel message at the college uh, back in, uh, oh, I forget when it was, 2002, I do believe. But just in summary, to look at this, if someone were to ask me, where is my assurance of salvation? How am I sure that I am saved? I would begin by saying, the work of the triune God assures me of my salvation. What do I mean by that? The first thing is that God the Father is immutable, unchangeable. We have been chosen by God. He is the author of salvation. And, listen, I bet every one of us in here are thankful for the fact that God hasn't changed his mind on that. Because all of us have given reasons why if God changed his mind, he would have changed his mind on us. He would have seen us fail him. He would have seen us sin against him, and so on. But the decree of election is an immutable decree. The second thing is, concerning the work of Christ on the cross, and I called it the efficacy of the redeeming work of Christ. This is very much uh, in, in keeping with Steve's message a few weeks back on limited atonement or particular redemption. Christ's work on the cross was not to make salvation possible for everybody, but was to make salvation actual for those who have been chosen by God from eternity. And when Jesus said, it is finished from the cross, his work of redeeming us from our sins was finished. And the third thing is, concerning the third member of the Trinity, and that is the permanency of the sealing work of God's Holy Spirit. We read at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, that marvelous sentence that begins uh, at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, a sentence of like 202 words in the Greek, it ends with talking about the fact that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're sealed. That seal is a guarantee of the authenticity of our salvation. Now there is a fourth point that I put on it, and the fourth point has to do with, and I think the fourth point has to be relegated down here to the fourth position. It can't precede any of the others, but that is our dedication to the duties of the Christian life. We're to live a life of obedience. Obedience in following him. So, you know, I I, I, I kind of threatened you last week that I was going to call on different people to, to catch, you know, what your answer would be. But please accept this as my answer and... I'm ready. I'm ready to move on. Maybe I should see. Is, does anyone have a question? So ready for new business. Here's where we are. Now, you'll notice that the title that I've given to this is The Delights of the Palace Beautiful, and then in parentheses, and the Danger Beyond. 
when I first gave these lectures a few years back on Wednesday, e on Wednesday evenings at the church, I dealt with this part, the danger beyond, in connection with this part right here. It was all part of it. But I have decided there is too much that relates to this and the event that follows that to try to stuff it into today's lesson. So for next week, I've already typed up the title for our notes. It is going to be Two Dark Valleys. Two Dark Valleys. The Valley of Humiliation and the Valley of the Shadow of Death. I get a chill just mentioning it. Next week, God willing. So, let's see if we can get moving here. We have, this morning, as we have in weeks past, and lo and behold, I, I've fallen back into my giving you some blanks to fill in. I can't help myself, you guys, please. Forgive me. <laughs> Our theological look today is concerning ecclesiology, and my first question is this. Where would you be without the church? Where would you be without the church? Don't we thank God for the church? Yeah. So, let's get into this now. The first word on the board there, and I cannot figure out how to get breathing marks and accents on this typeface, Daniel, but this is the Greek word, ekklesia. You say it with me. Ekklesia. That word is translated church. Church. It has some other translations too, but the most common translation for that word is the word church. That word is made up, and I dare not pick up a marker and mark on the screen here where the word divides, and that would be grounds for being shot, probably, <clears throat> but that's made up of two parts. The ek part right here is a prepositional prefix that means out of, and I'm looking at an exit sign over there. You guys, that comes from a Greek word. Which is yeah. Exodus? Exodus. I too. heard that that was the sign that says... Is the sign you will see in Greece. Yeah. Where there's an exit from the turnpike. Like, or whatever. The second part of the word right in here is from the verb form, kaleo, I call. So, very simply, the church is briefly defined as the called out ones. The called out ones. The church is made up of all those who have been called out of darkness and have been brought to light and life. Out of darkness and death into light and light. Thus the church is made up of God's elect who have been purchased with his own blood. This is God's work of bringing the church into existence. God's work. Now, when I put this on the board here, it's made up of God's elect who have been purchased with his own blood. I have a scripture reference that goes with that, and I want to read that scripture reference. The scripture reference is from Ephesians. <clears throat> I, excuse me, it's from Acts. It's from the book of Acts, and it's from chapter 20, where Paul is giving his farewell 
to the Ephesian elders, he is actually located at Miletus when he speaks these words, but he's called the elders of the church in Ephesus to come to him. And in this wonderful passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse 18, going through the rest of the chapter, we have a summarization of how Paul carried out his ministry when he was in Ephesus for three years on his third missionary journey. But then as we come to verse 26 in this passage, Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent from the blood of all of you. Wait a minute, did I put the wrong reference down here? It looks like I probably did. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, that grieves me. Mm. But it talks about the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is 28. Just, uh, you know, you get flustered when it's not the right verse and all of a sudden, yes, verse 28, let me read that. Um, Verse 28, the very next verse. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. There's just a couple more things that I want to say about the church and then we'll get into our visit to the palace. Beautiful. In Scripture, the church is called the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Now, if the church is the body of Christ, then what is Christ in relation to the body? The head in relation to the body. Second of all, the church is referred to as the household of God or the family of God. You could write either one of those words on this point. The household of God or the family of God. And third of all, you know from Ephesians chapter 5, for example, that the church is referred to as the bride of Christ and thus Christ is the bridegroom. The bridegroom. The church is the body of Christ, the family of Christ, and the bride. Those three very beautiful pictures of the church. One more thing. The marks of a true church. You've heard about this before, probably, but in the notes I put it this way. In Reformed circles, the three marks of a true church are, number one, there must be a regular, consistent Preaching of the word. If someone attends a church and the word of God is not preached at all, that is not a true church. Number two, number two, the administration of the sacraments, the ordinances. Again, this is the reformed position on this. So. Most Reformed people have no problem with the word sacraments there. What do we mean by that? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. If those things are practiced as they're given in Scripture. And the third thing is what? The third thing is the application of church discipline, or as I stated it more fully here, the right administration of biblical church discipline. The right administration of biblical church discipline. These are three crucial things. So, you know, I wanted to say this, and these are just a a few minutes at the beginning, our theological look, our look at the Bible before we look into 
where we are in Pilgrim's Progress. Again, I go all the way back to that first question. Where would you be without the church? Where would I be without the church? Can I add? <clears throat> I wouldn't begin to know where I could be without the body of Christ. Yeah. Ministering to my family while we went through a lot of different things with my husband's health. And then shortly after coming here to this church, when he passed away, the body of Christ enveloped my family. And in such a way, there was such a beautiful service. Um, at one of my Bible studies, um, a dear friend, Chris Crosby, said, you know, it doesn't take a village. It takes the body of Christ. And that has That's stayed good. with me for decades now. So when I hear somebody say, oh, it takes a village, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. It takes the body of Christ. Yeah. And and we are all part of that and should be functioning as yeah. that. You know, I think of years ago, and some of you uh, witnessed this, uh, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Brazil with Mike and Sandy Shot. This is way, way back in the beginning of their, their foreign missionary uh, involvements. And uh, we went down there and ministered to street kids in Sao Paulo. We went into Sao Paulo, one of the largest cities in the world, population-wise, found some street children, and then brought those street children to a camp that we put on for them and presented the gospel. And I'll never forget the opportunity I had on three occasions to present the gospel to them. I took drawings with me in a big folio. I carried that big folio on a plane and everything. And uh, it gives me chills to think back at that and think of those Brazilian kids who were living on the streets. Apparently, and only God knows the hearts, but apparently all of them in that room embracing Christ. And I wondered many times after that, where are they now? Where are they now? I have my picture taken with a little boy named Alexander. I kind of sent that in a little letter to my prayer supporters. I wonder, where, I wonder if they're still alive even. Uh, they didn't, at least immediately, have the opportunity to become a part of a church like we do. Well, let's go. Let's go. Let me very quickly run you through this now. Boom. Here it is. Seeing a very stately palace called Beautiful, encountering two lions, meeting the porter named Watchful, introduction to the damsels of the palace, his pleasant stay at the palace Beautiful, his first view of the delightful <coughs> mountains, his departure clad in armor, his descent into the Valley of Humiliation, and really these last two points in his encounter with Apollyon, I'm saving until next week. But that's the essence of what this part of the book brings us to. So here we go. <clears throat> Surely, I better have my sheet in my hand here. Surely, the two lions were fearsome, especially in the fading sunlight and growing darkness. Remember, the day was well spent, well spent. And I'm sure that Christian was fearful because of that, especially since two men had come running in the opposite direction and they were afraid of the lions and all the dangers. Watchful, who was the porter, told him that the lions were chained and he must stay in the middle of the path. The lions, remember this is an allegory written by John Bunyan, 
The lions represent the persecution of the Puritans, and Bunyan was one of them. The persecution of the Puritans by both the civil and the ecclesiastical authorities. The powers that be, both in the realm of civil government and the powers that be in the realm of ecclesiastical government. That's why Bunyan's sitting in jail while he's writing this story. They are restrained. Who are they? The two lions, the civil authorities and the ecclesiastical authorities. They are restrained by the sovereign God. The sovereignty of God is one of the most precious truths, doctrines in all of Scripture. I think if you ask any Christian if he believes in the sovereignty of God, I think virtually all of them would say, yeah, I do. But many, if not most, would agree to a somewhat limited sovereignty. If you ask them, is God sovereign in the salvation of men, for example? Uh, they would say, not really. Not really. Men choose on their own. But God is sovereign. The lions were chained. Uh, did, did Bunyan get some goosebumps when he was seeing the lions and all? Probably did. Do the civil authorities and the ecclesiastical authorities sometimes give us reason to fear? <clears throat> the palace beautiful let me just summarize concerning the palace beautiful and is this exactly what it looked like I don't know but it's the best palace I could find that I thought was beautiful so here Christian is going to enjoy these things he's going to enjoy hospitality he's going to enjoy food not just any food but lavish food He's going to enjoy edifying conversation. There's so much said in these pages about edifying conversation amongst them. He's going, to, he's going to enjoy rest, a good night's rest, and more than a good night's rest because of the amount of time he stayed there. He is going to experience help for the journey ahead. And the journey ahead is what we're going to deal with next week. Apollyon and then the valley of the shadow of death. <clears throat> the palace beautiful represents the church. I think, again, this is an allegory, and what does the palace beautiful represent? I think the best answer to that is the church. And if I go back to the previous slide and all those things we listed there, you know what? All those things we, we saw there are things that we enjoy because of the church. The names of the four virgins that he is going to meet here represent essential virtues of the Christian life. Now, without looking at anything here, can you name these four virgins? Can you name one of them? Who was the first one he met? Discretion. The first one he met. Who were the other three that he met? Prudence, piety, 
and charity. Have you ever known anybody named discretion? I don't think so. Probably not. Have you ever known anybody named piety? Probably not. How about prudence? Possibly. Possibly. How about charity? Yay, early. I've known, how many charities have we known? At least one. One of the sweetest girls ever. Ever. Well, they are, these four ladies here, pictures of the refreshment to be found in Christian fellowship in the church. There's no substitute for that. No substitute for the kind of Christian fellowship that we enjoy here. We may enjoy Christian fellowship in other contexts, in other places, but there's nothing like the Christian fellowship that we enjoy with those of like precious faith. Whether it is here, you know, within the confines of Lakeside Community Chapel, or whether you have just made a mission trip to the other side of the world and you've met Christians there, and you come home saying, I have met people of like precious faith with my faith, like Peter writes. Well, here we go. Discretion, some, some of the commentators on Pilgrim's Progress suggest that discretion represents leaders in the church. You can just uh, patiently look at the slides here, and then we'll pick it up again. Colleen, say, out of my way. I've probably been in your way most of the time. I'm sorry. Sorry. <clears throat> Piety, a sincere desire to do God's will. Prudence. Prudence understands spiritual matters and how to search the heart. And finally, charity judges kindly yet justly. These are some little summaries of the virtues. Would you like a moment or two to... To write a couple notes on that, I will let you do that. And then we'll look more specifically at some conversations, delightful conversations. <clears throat> I loved these pictures when I found these pictures. I, I spent so much time looking for uh, pictures to illustrate this. And since the books have been illustrated so many times and in so many different ways, I thought these were beautiful pictures of beautiful women here. And I can see you're still writing, so. <laughs> so, I'm, shall I, shall I, I'll, I'll delay a little bit. <clears throat> the next thing we're going to see here is edifying conversation before supper. And Christian will talk to the three ladies, piety, prudence, and charity. Now, I just read this again this morning, early this morning. So it's still all fresh in my mind. Here we go. <clears throat> Edifying conversation before supper with piety, summarizing his journey thus far. 
He recounted, well, I, 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 I'll just show you in the notes here. He recounted three scenes from the house of the interpreter, plus one. He mentions one more after that. Well, I'll tell you what, I should give the door prize today. If you remember which scenes he recalled most vividly from when he was being shown around the house of the interpreter. Do you remember those scenes at all? The what? The man in the cage is one of them. Yes, it is. Fire and oil. The fire and oil. That's the first one. The you know the devil pouring water to put out the fire, and on the other side of the wall, the Lord Jesus pouring oil to keep the fire going. So we have two of them there. Man in the iron cage. No, that wasn't. It was a man who woke up from a dream, and he dreamt that the judgment had come, and he was afraid. Those three things he mentioned in his conversation <clears throat> with Charity, it really made an impression on him. What was the fourth one? Uh, with uh, Pi, excuse me. What was the fourth one? He added a fourth one. Anyone know the fourth one was? It was the man storming the castle. Remember that? Yes. The man storming the castle, which Bunyan wrote to emphasize the fact that it is, to use the words of Jesus, those who are violent men and who take the city by force. So he remembered those things and shared them in his talk with piety. <clears throat> Above all, <clears throat> He recalled, <clears throat> he recalled the scene at the cross and saw in his mind one hanging on the tree that stuck in his mind. Above all, he said that coming up the hill was hard work. Next, prudence. He talked about the inward <clears throat> carnal thoughts which still troubled him. Let me stop on you. He talked on the inward carnal thoughts, which still troubled him. Do any of you have problems with that? Um, may I be so bold as to say we all do? <laughs> we all do. I'd be terrible saying you all do. <laughs> we all do. We all have sinful thoughts. And it distresses us, doesn't it? Distresses us greatly. How did Christian deal with them? I love this. <clears throat> he vanquished them by thinking about the cross and looking at his coat, it's a new coat, and his role, which he had almost lost for good. Those were the ways that he vanquished those <clears throat> troubling sinful thoughts that he still dealt with and that you still deal with. Think about that now. Looking at the cross, realizing that you are dressed in a new garment, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ now, and your role, your assurance. Your, your passport to heaven. Look 
in the scriptures. Flee to the scriptures when you deal with those kind of things. Third, charity. <clears throat> Talking about his family. When asked about his family, his wife and four small children, who would not believe his pleas to come with him, uh, <clears throat> Christian made it very clear that he earnestly prayed for them. He prayed for them with tears. Why did they not come? Well, his wife was afraid of losing this world. His children were given to the foolish delights of youth. And they were young children. But that kept them from joining Christian. You remember when Christian is pictured very, very early on in, in this whole story? Christian is pictured with his fingers in his ears, running and saying, Life! Life! He wanted to shut out what others were saying and you know, some of those others were wife and kids. You know, Libby asked me at the beginning of Sunday school class, are we going to do part two? And my response was, we have to get finished part one. <laughs> and uh, not really on the initial schedule that I gave to you, but I'll say this. You can bet your boots I'm going to be very, very desirous of looking at part two also. And there are some, and I think I might be among them, who will say, I even like part two better than part one. And when you see the picture of Christian's wife, Christiana, and follow their journey, <clears throat> anyhow, <clears throat> that's for a time to come. <clears throat> well, charity assured him that he had delivered his soul from their blood. Supper at the palace, beautiful. It was a lavish meal. The table talk, and I love that expression, the table talk, reminds me of a magazine I read every day uh, in the very early morning, but this is two words here. The table talk focused on the Lord of the hill. Note the things that they said about him. Let me check my watch right here. I'm going to hopefully open right to where I can read to you exactly. For, as they said, and as I believe, said Christian, he did, oh, I'll have to back up a little bit more than that. Now, the table was furnished with fat things and with wine that was well refined, and all their talk at the table was about the Lord of the Hill, as namely about what he had done, and wherefore he did what he did, and why he had built that house. And by what they said, I perceived that he had been a great warrior, and had fought with and slain him that had the power of death but not without great danger to himself, which made me love him the more. For, as they said, and as I believe, said Christian, he did it with a loss of much blood, 
But that which put glory of grace into all that he did was that he did it of pure love to his country, that is to heaven. And besides, there were some of them of the household that said they had seen and spoke with him since he did die on the cross. And they had attested that they had it from his own lips that he is such a lover of poor pilgrims that the like is not to be found from the east to the west. Talking about Christ as they sat at dinner and after dinner. Well, where's my clicker here? Aren't they great? Great things? They talked till late at night. They prayed together. And then he retired. Christians, good night's rest in the palace. Beautiful. Did it look like this? I don't know. But this is pretty nice room that I found here. Pilgrim slept in a large upper chamber facing east so he'd be able to see the sun rise. The name of the room was Peace. Christian awoke early the next morning with a song. Do you have any idea what that song was? Let me read it to you rather than sing it to you. Where am I now? Is this the love and care of Jesus for the men that pilgrims are thus to provide that I should be forgiven and dwell already the next door to heaven? That's the song that was on his lips as the new day began. The next day, he was taken into the armory where he saw the armor that God provided for all pilgrims, as well as the weapons by which many of his servants had done wonderful things in the past. Note the screen. In the armory, if you've ever visited in Europe, for example, the castles and everything, you, you would be familiar with armories, the armory where the coats of mail are and, and all those things and the armed things in the hallways. The equipment which the Lord provided for pilgrims. Now look at this. A sword, a shield, a helmet, a breastplate, shoes, and all prayer. And if you read in the book, now in my edition, in naming these things, all prayer was in italics. It stood out from all the rest of the things. Now, how many pieces of armor are there found in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul writes about the panoply of God? Seven. Seven? Okay. Let's, let's remove this one for the moment and we'll say six without that one. Okay? Now, which one is not found here? Girdle of Jehovah. The belt of truth. The first thing, the girdle, the belt of truth, the very first thing that is mentioned. Why he left that out, I'm really not sure. I, I, I don't have an answer to that. But when he adds this, and David, you said very well, seven, the very next verse in Ephesians chapter six talks about the weapon of all prayer. We probably never think of that. When, when you see the models and the pictures and the posters that are done of the Christian in full armor, you, you usually don't see all prayer being added to it.
But let me tell you, that is an extremely important piece of armor. And as we see in next week's lessons, it will become extremely important in part of what we're going to see. Now, Christian has shown these things at this point, and he has also shown the weapons which some of his servants had done wonderful things with. Weapons like these. A weapon that Moses used, that Jael used, that Gideon used, that Shamgar used, that Samson used, that David used, the Lord used. Do you remember what any of those things were? What, what for example, was what Moses used? A staff. A staff. How about Gideon? Uh, the pitcher and the fire. The pitcher and the fire. Uh, how about, I'll go with easy ones here. How about Samson? Jawbone of an ass, for example. How about David? Sling and a stone. I like John. The Lord? A sword. Boy, a couple hard ones here now. Jail. She used the tent peg. A tent peg. Boom. A tent peg right through the temples of what was the guy's name? Filled the guy milk. Sisera. Sisera. Can I have a drink? Here's some nice, nice warm milk for you. <laughs> Boom. Nailed to the floor. And her heroic deed. Right? Shamgar. Oxcode, I think. Something like that. He was shown all those things in the armory. And then, notice this now in your notes. The next day, he was ready to go. But they prevailed upon him to stay yet longer, yet another day. These would be days four and five if you're reading through and taking note of what it says here. So he's staying there for the better part of a week. On the morning of that day, he took, they took him to the top of the house and showed him the delectable mountains in the distance to the south. Before he left... They took him once more to the armory and they fitted him from head to foot with armor to prepare him for battles in the way. Did Christian have any clue about the kind of battle, battles that he would be facing? I don't think so. But it's not going to be long. It's not going to be long at all. Christian asked the porter if he saw any pilgrims pass by. Why I didn't make a slide on this, I'm not sure. But he told him that there was one named Faithful, who, said Christian, had been his near neighbor. And soon, Christian is going to meet with his first beloved companion on his journey, a man named Faithful. <clears throat> the final scene. Christian said this, as it was difficult coming up the hill, so, so far as I can see, it is dangerous going down. Prudence agreed and said this, yes, so it is, for it is a hard matter for a man to go down into the valley of humiliation. And before she was done speaking there, she warned him about catching no slip by the way. 
That's a little bit of archaic language here, but what, what, what does it mean? What's the picture? Be careful that you don't slip and fall on the way. Guard yourself against that. Um, note. This has been a most delightful retrieve for Christian, and he left well-rested and encouraged. He had seen a glimpse of Emmanuel's land, from which, he was told, he could see the gate to the celestial city. Let me just read this to you from the book. I read it again today. It, it, it's something that you can... <clears throat> You can skip over so, so easily. <clears throat> Let me read you this whole paragraph now, <clears throat> and part of it we've seen on the screen. Then he began to go forward, but discretion, piety, charity, and prudence would accompany him down to the foot of the hill. So they went on together, reiterating their former discourses, till they came to go down the hill. Then said Christian, as it was difficult coming up, so, so far as I can see, it is dangerous going down. Yes, said Prudence, so it is, for it is a hard matter for a man to go down into the valley of humiliation, as thou art now, and to catch no slip by the way. Therefore, they said, said they, are we come out to accompany thee down the hill. Now listen to this last sentence. So he began to go down, but very warily, very carefully, yet he caught a slip or two. <laughs> he slipped a couple times just as he left, as he was going down the hill. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm just, uh, I'm just caught with this, the words of prudence here. It's very hard for a man to get down into the valley of humiliation. Hard for man. Does that mean mankind? I, I think it means the male of the gender in particular. Men have a little bit more problem with this. We don't have the corner on the market, of course. You ladies uh, can honestly say. But humility is a hard thing for a man, isn't it? I mean, I'm, yeah, it is. But Christian's going down the hill with a slip or two on the way. And what lies ahead? There will be a foul fiend coming across the field. But that's for next week. And uh, I can't wait. I can't wait.